may be seated. Our sermon text for this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, well-known chapter dealing with uh, the great subject of love, great chapter for us to consider as, as a church, how we can grow in love for one another and how we can be uh, loving the body of Christ and persevering in unity. Let's hear God's word this morning as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Thomas Watson, the 17th century English Puritan, said these words. It is Satan's great design to set his cloven foot among God's people to make divisions and contention among the sons of Zion. The devil's best music is discord. One of Satan's highest goals is to attack the peace and unity of the church. Sin in the church, as well as differences of perspective, differences of belief, and differences of personality are often the means that Satan uses to attack the church. These attacks continue to this day, and and they're nothing new. These attacks have been going on since the church first began. Cain killed Abel in a furious rage against this first martyr. 
And the context of the Corinthian church during which Paul wrote the words of our text was one marked by incredible division. There was division in the form of factions. People were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or even I am of Christ. Imagine a context in the church where there are different groups of people all claiming to follow a specific pastor or teacher and boasting in that mark of division. Paul rebukes this as a mark of carnality among the church. The Corinthian church also had to deal with horrible cases of immorality. Things had gotten so bad that there were even members who were going to see prostitutes and engaging in sexual immorality with them. There was even a man who was living in an incestuous relationship with his own mother. The church was doing nothing about it. Instead, it was being arrogant and and boasting about it. As if that wasn't bad enough. There were also those who were so at odds with each other that they were taking their disagreements to civil court and suing each other. And we all know of the divisions that were there with the Lord's Supper where the rich would come earlier and have a great feast and would get drunk and the poor would come to the supper and have nothing to partake of. The context of our sermon text is one of great division in the Corinthian church. Makes us wonder as we hear this description of the Corinthian church, what was going on in that church? Why why can we even call it a church with all this sin and, and division that's going on? Surely... Thomas Watson was right in saying that it is Satan's great design to set his cloven foot among God's people. When Satan attacks the church with this profound degree of disunity, it's it's very easy for the church to become discouraged and discombobulated. We feel the, the weight of such attacks and wonder what our response should be. We wonder what our path forward is in, in the midst of disunity. And yet, here God's word comes to us from 1 Corinthians 13 and, and gives us profound direction amid the attacks of the evil one. The Corinthian church was a church marked by incredible division, yet Paul did not despair. He did not give them up and say, oh, they're too far gone. It's time for them to disband into all these various factions and disband into different churches. Or you can have one church of Apollos, one of Cephas, one of Christ, and no, he doesn't do that. Paul had great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ to unify the church once again. That is a hope that's brought out beautifully in our sermon text. Paul urges the church here to show love, a true Christian love that is patterned after the love of God himself. When Satan would attack the church with disunity, this needs to be our path forward as a church, that we would know the love of God for us, That we would show that same love that God has shown us to our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ.
But what is love? If you were asked to define love, well, how would you go about defining it? And I'm not asking for a definition of romantic love, but a definition of love in a general sense. Love that you might show to your fellow church members or neighbors. What is that kind of love? How would you define it? Well, if you were to think, uh, if you were to come up with a definition for this kind of love, you might struggle a bit because it isn't, uh, this isn't often how we speak of love in our culture. Love for us is often so tied up with ideas of, of the romance between a man and a woman. Love for us is almost always romantic love. Because of this, most of you younger boys are probably a little repulsed at this idea of love, and, and you wonder, well, what, what does this sermon have to do with me? I, I, don't, I don't have any interest in, in love. I did a quick Google search asking, what is love? And these were the definitions that Google came up with. It said, love is a set of emotions and behaviors characterized by intimacy, passion, and commitment. Another website said, love is an emotion that keeps people bonded and committed to one another. Still another website said, love is defined as an intense feeling of deep affection. And we see the the one thing in common with all those definitions is that they speak of love as primarily an emotion and feeling. And isn't that how we so often think of love? You say, I, I love this person because I have good feelings when I spend time with them. We, we just get along. We, we click. I just really like them. But when we don't have those good feelings anymore, we think we suddenly don't, we, we think, we're, well, we're no longer uh, in love and, and we and I'm no longer loving this person. And that's maybe even impossible for me to love them. We think, I don't, I don't feel like loving this person anymore. It's just not working anymore, so let me, let me give up here. I simply don't feel what I used to for that person. Our interests have changed. We, we had a fight. We, we don't click anymore, so therefore I don't, I don't have to love them. I, I even can't love them because it, it's just, there, there's not this emotion anymore. There's not this feeling anymore. And yet this is not how our text speaks of love. Biblically speaking, love is not simply an emotion or feeling. When Paul speaks of love in our text, he uses the, the Greek word agape. You know, for a bit of a, a Greek lesson, there, there are four different word, Greek words for love. The word stergo largely refers to the love that is shared among family members. We might see as love that exists between parents and children and and other siblings. The word eros speaks to a lustful desire and is often frequently used to speak of sexual love. Now, neither stergo or eros are used in the New Testament. However, the word phileo is. And it speaks to the type of love that friends have. It is a a reciprocal type of love. The word for love in our text is the word agape. And some have described agape as the most rational type of love. Love is a deep respect that shows itself in very specific actions. 
Christ uses this word for love in Matthew 5, 44, where he says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. With this call to love our enemies, we can, we can scratch our head in a sense, because our immediate feeling isn't uh, warm emotion to those who are intentionally hurting us. So we can wonder, well, how can I love someone I, I don't have maybe an emotional connection to? But notice what Christ calls us to do in that passage. Not to have warm feelings first and foremost, but we are to bless them. We are to do good to them. We are to pray for them. We are to do these actionable items for them as a declaration of our love. Let me see here that agape love is to show itself in specific actions. It is duty. It is a type of work that we are to do. And contrary to modern definitions of love, agape love is not necessarily a love that has its foundations based upon feelings. Now, that's not to say feelings and affections are, are completely out of this picture of love. No, no, they're very much uh, part of this and should be part of it. But that's not the foundation of, of this love. Agape is a love that requires actions and even sacrifice. Yet, in the midst of that sacrifice, it leads to incredible joy and contentment. And this is because it is sacrificial love. It is a love patterned after the love of God for his people. Even though God's people turned from him, even as we saw a small snippet in Isaiah 54, the Lord had turned his face for a little while against Israel because of its sin. God, again and again, show love to this people who rebelled against him. Agape love is a sacrificial love. Agape is a love that, regardless of our feelings, operates. The only way we can demonstrate such love is if we know God's love for us. 1 John 4, 10 through 11 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. This is God's love for you, church that he would lay down his life to save you from your sins. And we can't downplay our sins here. Our sins are not just hurts and hang-ups. Our sins are not excusable or justifiable. Our sins are disgusting breaches of the law of God. They are a filthy stench. And our sins have, have made us loveless. Our sins deserve the, the fierce anger and wrath of God. Because of our sins, we, we deserve to sit in darkness for eternity. We deserve the indignation of the Lord. And yet, we who did not deserve 
any love. Well, God has loved us to such a degree that he laid down his life for his people. God's love isn't just over these warm, fuzzy feelings that he has for his people. It is a great sacrifice. God's love is seen in sending Jesus Christ to die upon the cross to suffer the torments of hell for the sins of his people. The question that comes to you this morning as we think about this topic of love, as we think about our calling to love as a church, do you know the love of God for you? Do you know the love of God that he would wash away your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you aware of the depth, the incredible depth of this love? We as a church are to love one another. This must be our starting point, that we would know God's love for us. And that love would hold us in, in wondrous awe. We need a deep awareness of God's sacrificial love for us. And considering that, it's an utter necessity that Christians show love to one another. John said, I read it earlier and I'll read it again. John said, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We who have been loved much must also love much. It's a gross besmirching of the love of Christ towards us if we do not show love to others. If we fail to love, if we ask ourselves, what are we saying about God's love towards us since we're saying we want we want god to to be merciful and gracious to us and indeed we beg god to be merciful to us yet we are saying well that is good for god to do but i i can do what i want i don't have to be forgiving to my brother who has sinned against me i can hold a grudge against him but god you forgive me for my sins you forgive me for everything i've done What horrific damage we do to the gospel and our very own souls when we fail to show love to one another. Our text, Paul speaks of the devastations this causes in the church. A church that does not have love for each other. It has a worship that is painfully dry and empty. Paul says in verse 1 of our text, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Paul is saying that though he were as an apostle to speak in the church, not just with the tongues of men, not just in, in the beautiful languages that we have on this earth, but also with the tongues of angels, with, with these heavenly words, But he were not to have love. The words he would speak would be mere sounds. Paul's words could be the most beautiful language in the world. They could be a great wonder to behold. But they would ultimately be empty. And even annoying. Not just empty, but annoying. 
All his illustrious words, which would normally sound so beautiful, would just be an annoying cacophony of sounds. This is the sound of the worship of a church that is loveless. It is a lifeless sound. It is dead. Love is necessary for Christian worship. Paul goes further in verse 2 by saying he could be the most eminent theologian, a brilliant expositor of Scripture, able to understand and teach absolutely every doctrine and passage. But even if he was a man of towering intellect, yet if he did not have love, he would be absolutely nothing. Many of you rightly desire to be knowledgeable about the Scriptures and doctrine. Many of you are very knowledgeable about the Scriptures. But if you do not have love, all that knowledge profits you nothing and profits the church nothing. You can fill your time reading books, listening to podcasts and sermons, All that will be nothing if you do not have love. Paul says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Knowledge and understanding without love, it's pointless. It's to no profit. And so we see there that love is necessary for Christian knowledge. But Paul also says that love is necessary for faith. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul seems to be here speaking specifically of, of a miraculous type of faith. The type of faith that can work wonders and do the impossible. In Paul's time, there were many people who could work wonders. There were gifts of healing in the church. But even if somebody was able to heal another person of a horrible disease, yet he did not have love, that faith would be as dry and empty as a gourd. Empty and hollow with no use, no substance to it. And Christ refers to such people in Matthew seven. 22 through 23, where he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Here they're claiming, well, look at all the incredible things we've done. Look at all these miracles and and wonders our faith has accomplished. Yet Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Faith is empty, dry. Even, even miraculous faith is empty, dry, and lifeless without love. True faith will never be devoid of love. Love is necessary for Christian faith. Yet Paul goes even further. He says that though he were to do good works... Even works that the world sees as loving. Giving your goods to the poor. Selling what you have and and laboring for those in need. Yet there is no good to such an act without love. The action isn't love itself. No, Paul makes a distinction. that we We can do actual 
uh, good. We can be giving things to the poor and yet not do it out of love. Paul says even if he were to have the ultimate sacrifice, giving up his body in martyrdom, what some might call the, the greatest act of devotion or, or love to God. If this was not done with love, it would have been empty and pointless. It would have been as empty and pointless as the death of, of a little ant underneath your foot. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is necessary for Christian works. And so we see here that love, our foundation as a church, needs to be looking to the love of God making that our foundation. But then we also see the absolute necessity that love is for the Christian church. It's necessary for the Christian's worship, his knowledge, his faith, and works. Now, seeing this necessity, how can we live lives of love? Paul teaches us here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we can engage in this hearty calling of love. And gives many practical examples of what love looks like in the life of believers. The first thing he mentions is that love is patient. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is forbearing when it comes to offenses. And this love is illustrated by the king in Matthew eighteen twenty four, who has a servant who essentially owed him 60 million days of work. The text says that this servant owed 10,000 talents. To put that in perspective, in order for a man to have enough money to get one talent, he would essentially have to work 6,000 days. Now, just consider how much he would have had to work to get 10,000 talents. This is an astronomical sum of money. It's, it's an incomprehensible sum of money. We read in Matthew 18.25 that he was not able to pay it. His master, when his master saw this, that this servant was unable to pay it, commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. When we sin against each other, when we say things to one another in anger, or we don't speak in love, or we slander and gossip about one another, we are incurring this huge debt of sin against the other person. That's a debt that needs to be paid. Yet what does this king do with the servant who owes this great astronomical debt? Well, Matthew 18, 26 says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. We read that the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. This master suffered long and was kind with this servant. When we are patient with the offenses of others, we are forgiving that great debt that person owes us. 
They come to us asking for forgiveness, and and we willingly grant that forgiveness. We are releasing them from the debt that is owed. Is this not how God has suffered long and been kind to you? He has forgiven you all of your sins. Are you mindful of that? And are you following your king, being patient with your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you suffering long and being kind with them, even as God has been patient with you? Paul continues by saying, Love does not envy, love is not jealous. Jealousy is a major temptation in the church. We so often love having the preeminence over others. We want people to notice the things that we are doing. When we do something good, we, we, we want to be noticed for it. We, we want people to praise us for the things we do, for our godliness. Like a, a peacock, we strut our feathers. When nobody notices what we are doing, we get discouraged or offended. We want recognition. Yet Paul tells us that love does not envy. Jealousy is antithetical to biblical love. Instead, as we love, we must seek not our own praise and adoration, but the good of others. The Christian rejoices not in himself, but in others. And this is love. Paul continues saying, love does not behave rudely. And we could translate this as love does not behave indecently. We see that love is not uh, simply blind of acceptance of everything and everyone. Next month, the world will be celebrating uh, Pride Month and saying love is rejoicing in it and practicing moral debauchery. God tells us here, that is not love. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not behave indecently. This is the opposite of love, what the world is going to be celebrating. Instead, love follows the morality of God's law. Love is based upon special revelation, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, what God has revealed about himself here and righteousness. Love does not seek its own. It is not selfish. Paul would say in Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The sad reality that in our individualistic American church mindset, that we, 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 we think we, we go to church primarily to be served. Just like you go to a restaurant to be waited upon. People often go to church expecting to have all their interests met. Yet this is a wrong emphasis. Paul says love does not seek its own. As Christians, when we come to church, we ought to be thinking, how can I serve the church? How can I love my fellow brothers and sisters? What are their needs? How can I minister to them in their needs? 
Love does not seek its own. Rather, it weeps with those who are weeping and rejoices with those who rejoice. Love is not provoked. It's not irritated. We can all become irritated. Sometimes it's easier for some of us to become irritated rather than others. But, you know, this is a common frailty in all of us. And um, sometimes uh, we can be irritated at someone because they're not irritating. They're, they're too nice and, and too, 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 too loving. And that can annoy us if, if we're in a bad mood. But we're told here that love does not quickly become angry. In other words, love mirrors once again the, the, the character of God towards his people. Our God is slow to anger. He's long suffering with us. Consider how, how God has been so patient with you in your sins. Do you look at your own faltering attempts at sanctification? How, how, you, how you see these sins in your life and you keep falling flat on your face again and again as you seek to put this sin out of your life. And you come to God again and again, Lord, forgive me. Wash me from my sins. I was wrong to do this. God in his grace forgives you for that. Consider how slow to anger your heavenly father is. Yet, sometimes we're very quick to anger with the sins of others. We're very gracious towards ourselves in, in dealing with our sins. Yet, Paul tells us here that in love, love that mirrors the character of God, we need to be slow to anger in dealing with the sins of others. That the same grace that God has shown us with our sins, we would show that with others. Love thinks no evil, Paul continues. Love thinks no evil, or a better translation would be, love does not keep a, a record of wrongs. Living together in a church for any amount of time means we can very quickly start start keeping a record of all the wrongs that somebody has committed against us. This is just part of, of us living in a fallen world. People are going to be sinning against us. Happens so often in marriage. Unresolved conflict leads to, to a greater and greater building up of sin. And the same sort of thing can happen in the church. Or we, we don't deal with conflict. And it can lead to a building and a building. And a keeping of wrongs. And because of all that, we can start harboring suspicions, doubts, and assumptions about one another. And yet this must be far from our minds. We must deal with sin in, in a biblical manner. It means speaking to the person who sinned against us and, and seeking to resolve it immediately, as, as quickly as we, we possibly can. And once confession and forgiveness has happened, that is the end of the matter. Love thinks no evil. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. 
this can this should be something that challenges each one of us. We might all be quick to say that we do not rejoice in iniquity. But many of us can be very quick to listen when there is a juicy story about what somebody else has done. We rejoice just enough in iniquity to give a listen to what other people have to the ways other people have sinned or, or, or what they have done. Yet we ought to despise sin so much that if it has nothing to do with us, we tell the other person, you, you need to deal with this biblically. If you haven't already talked with, with the other person, you need to go talk with them. If you've already talked to them and, and you're seeking me to come with you, I'm willing to do this, but you need to resolve this. You need to follow those steps outlined for us in Matthew 18. Rather than rejoicing in iniquity, we must be a people who rejoices in the truth, where we are actively and intentionally seeking the good of the other. We view them in the best possible light, not looking for their sins and failings, but looking for the gifts and graces that God himself has given them. It's rather terrifying how different our dispositions to people uh, can be based upon our, our attitude towards them. You know, as an example uh, from my own life about this, the, the first time I listened to a Paul Washer sermon, I listened to that sermon with the intent to find everything wrong with it, doctrinally, uh, exegetically. Uh, uh, I, I, was, I was looking with that goal in mind. Because I was looking with that and, and listening to that sermon in that way radically changed my walk with the Lord. And so we need to be very careful with what lens we are looking at people with. Are we rejoicing in the truth about others or are we rejoicing in iniquity? Westminster Larger Catechism says that the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor. When we engage with someone, are we promoting and preserving the good of their name? Or are we tearing down their name with our mental assumptions about their actions and character? Love rejoices in the truth. And finally, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, when Paul says that love here believes all things, this does not believe, mean blind acceptance of what somebody might say. It's not a naive love that just, oh, you said that? Well, okay, I, I, I believe that. No, true love is going to investigate. True, true love does not behave indecently. True love does not behave rudely. There's, there's investigation that happens with true love. True love seeks to believe all things. It's not a love that harbors false ideas or lies. Instead, it hopes all things. In other words, it does not doubt it, but... Uh, it is optimistic. It's, it's not cynical. It hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love has the ability to suffer many hurts and harms, yet it remains resilient amid 
those hurts and harms. Because that love is ultimately based upon the foundation of God's love for that person. They recognize that I have sinned so greatly against the Lord, and yet the Lord has been gracious again and again to me. And this is the hearty call for love. This is a very weighty and and difficult call for us as a church. We sin in our love for one another day by day. And yet, the hope of, of this love is that it's ultimately based upon the gospel. When we see our, our failures to love one another, we can run to Christ and be reminded of his great love for us and be washed from our sins. And that can again encourage us once again to live out this example of love we have here in our text. To practice this type of love means that we must constantly have an understanding of God's love for us. So Thomas Watson was correct when he said, it is Satan's great design to set his cloven foot among God's people, to make division and contention among the sons of Zion. The devil's best music is discord. Yeah, that's not the end of that quote from Thomas Watson. Instead, he continued by saying these words, Oh, let all Christ's people, his sheep, flock together and associate in love. Those who hope to meet together in heaven should not fall out by the way. Unity is the great music in heaven. There is unity in the Trinity, and unity among saints would be a great blessing on earth. For Christians to unite is their interest and wisdom. Union is their strength. Union is their glory and their ornament. The sheep of Christ unite together. When the saints are harmoniously united, then they adorn their blessed shepherd, the Lord Jesus. While the devil's best music is discord, Christ's best music is unity. And when we are unified as a church, when we associate together in love with one another, we adorn our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We make known his love for us, and we manifest that to the world. And so may we as a church ever seek to walk in love with one another. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, we are in awe at your great love towards us. Lord, your love is a perfect love of incredible height and depth. Lord, how often we fall short of this love. How often we sin against our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would enable us by your grace and Holy Spirit to put on this love that we might more beautifully reflect the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Father, we need your Spirit to work in our hearts to do this. And so we pray. We pray to that end. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn our psalm books to Psalm 100.